The Athletic. Rubens Barrichello's move to Ferrari in 2000 was always likely to result in him finally becoming an F1 winner at some point, but he probably thought it would come in more straightforward circumstances than it did when he finally broke his duck at Hockenheim that year. Barrichello came from 18th on the grid to win the German Grand Prix, helped by a track invader and an inspired strategy call to stay out on dry weather tyres when the rain hit one end of the circuit. Unsurprisingly, there were plenty of tears afterwards, first on the slowing down lap, then again on the podium, creating those iconic images that are instantly recognisable today, where Barrichello is sobbing into a Brazilian flag. So joining me, Glenn Freeman, to revisit Germany 2000, and hopefully without bursting into tears at any point, are Ed Straw and Ben Anderson. Now, Ed, uh, you know the drill with the opening question. When you think of this race weekend, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, it's the track invader, but one specific aspect of it in particular, and that's his execution of his mission that really sticks in the mind, because it's a nod to one of my favourite things in football. Because you know you get protests at football that are scrawled on bedsheets, they're quite hard to read, the font size is all wrong, they're running out of space, and it's just very, very hard. It undercuts the seriousness of the protest. And the track invader at Hockenheim had quite a similar vibe, didn't he? Whatever he had written wasn't actually very easy to read. It was on, I don't know, white coat or something under his. He had one of those sort of plastic raincoats over the top. So that almost undermined what he was doing. So I think the message I want to get across here is that if you are going to do something stupendously dangerous like that, and absolutely don't, make sure you've got your sign writing in order and your messaging right. Brief to the point. Can't be an afterthought. That's a good point. I'd, until we researched this episode, I'd, I wasn't aware of what the messaging said because it was so hard to work out. I think I've seen some claims of what it said. I'm not sure we've put it in the episode. Maybe I'll have to dig it out mid-recording and we can see what uh, the internet claimed was on the back of... Yeah, I don't know. Was it a coat? Was it a, a, a giant bedsheet? No idea. But if we're talking about uh, achieving his mission, as we'll get into, he did spectacularly cost the Mercedes-powered McLaren's uh, victory. So I guess uh, even if he couldn't read his message, he, he messed up Mercedes' day, which I think was his goal. Uh, ben, you passed your audition on our recent Imola 99 episode, so it's good to have you back. What stands out for you? Well, apart from uh, the uh, Mr. Halfwit, as Murray Walker called him famously on the commentary, uh, wearing a poncho, I think, is the word we were looking for, um, has to be the start line crash. Schumacher wandering into the path of Fisichella's Benetton. I remember it clearly at the time, actually. And I remember thinking, haha, Schumacher getting his comeuppance for basically driving like an arsehole the whole season. Yeah, that'll be a subject we're on to quite early in this episode. But for the final time in this series, let's hear some memories from our audience as well. Thank you to everyone who has shared them on Twitter when we've put out the calls for these. There were lots of mentions for Barrichello's decisive tyre gamble late on, and Colin Mills said that this was back in the day when Ferrari had good pit strategy. Uh, Erland Hannestad says Barrichello's outburst of emotions over the radio after he crossed the finish line. And Rubens wasn't the only one crying, as Hugo Cortez says, my grandma and cousins asking why I was crying as Barrichello went through the stadium section on the last lap. Johnny O says Jean Alesi chucking his gloves off and bouncing his helmet off the ground after that sickening crash with Diniz. 
And of course, there were lots of you choosing the disgruntled ex-Mercedes employee who invaded the track. Thank you to Mano Mandino, Irwin, Joe, Michael Moyle and David Handy, among others. There are a few mentions for Jacques Villeneuve's massive spin, thanks to Ricardo Zonto, so we'll brush right past that. <laughs> but finally, one thing that kept coming up from our Brazilian listeners was that this was the race, this race gave Brazilian TV broadcaster Globo its first chance since 1993 to play the victory theme music that had become famous during Ayrton Senna's career. So many of you pointed this out. Uh, we'll, we'll do a, th a few thank yous now to uh, Max Lightshoe, uh, Lancer Gallant, Vitor Sanvido Apollinario and Gabriel Lima. Uh, just, just some of the many people who pointed this out. If you don't know what I'm talking about, perhaps this will jog your memory. O Brasil inteiro vibrando com você. Aí vem Rubens Barrichello. E nós vamos ouvir o tema da vitória. Que há sete anos não tocávamos. Aí vem Rubinho na ponta dos dedos. Rubens, 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 Rubens Barrichello do Brasil! Rubens Barrichello do Brasil vence de forma brilhante o grande prêmio da Alemanha. That was a very cool moment and it's great to hear that it meant so much to those of you who watched this in Brazil at the time. If you're looking for other ways to show your allegiance to the V10 era, then check out our merchandise range over at shop.the-race.com. I'm reliably informed that items from the Bring Back V10s range we have over there were the top sellers in August. So thanks to everyone who has been buying t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, water bottles or notepads. The deadline for submitting questions for our series finale has now passed, but if you'd like to get another chance to ask us anything about the V10 era, then make sure you're part of the Race Members Club, as we'll be giving our members an exclusive Q&A episode after this series has finished. Head to the-race.com forward slash members club to find out more and to sign up. And lastly, we've got something new to plug. The race now has its own app. So make sure you download that. It's available for Apple or Android devices. So you can keep up with everything we do here. And you can set up a free account to personalize your feed. So you only get the content you want to see. Thank you to everyone who has downloaded this already. And we hope you're enjoying it. But that's enough of the plugs. Let's crack on with F1 in the summer of 2000. Michael Schumacher headed into his home Grand Prix in the lead of the championship, but Ferrari was under scrutiny as he'd only scored 10 points in the last four races, while David Coulthard in second had picked up 26, and Mika Hakkinen and Rubens Barrichello had scored 20 each over that time. Schumacher had retired from two of those races with mechanical problems and been taken out at the start in Austria, but he said he hoped Ferrari had had enough bad luck to be able to start turning things around again, and he denied that things were slipping away from Ferrari. However, he accepted Ferrari had lost some ground to McLaren. He said, we have to work harder to catch up again, but we are not in a crisis. 
Schumacher said it was a similar pattern to what we'd seen in 1998 and 99 when McLaren started the year with the fastest car and then Ferrari had caught up. Only this time the roles were reversed. He also pointed out that the seven races he'd finished so far in 2000, he had won five of them. Ben, Schumacher's championship lead then was down to six points over Coulthard by this stage. Was it fair to suggest that Ferrari were under pressure in this title race? I think from the point of view of the points, yes. And you can understand the media clamouring to do that because, you know, it's a fun narrative, isn't it? You've got the fastest car in F1, the the emerging dominant driver, not really managing to quite hit home, but the underlying pace was always there. I, I kind of agree with Schumacher's assessment that it's a kind of a reversal of 99 and Ferrari start off the quicker, McLaren kind of make a bit of a comeback. But even watching Germany back, you can see how quick the Ferrari is in Barrichello's hands relative to the McLarens in that race. I think that was generally the pattern through the season. Uh, they won ultimately more than half the races. Um, it feels a bit like Red Bull in the current Formula One season. You know, the underlying pace of the car means even if you lose a few races to poor reliability and bad luck, ultimately there are enough races in the calendar that you can just make that pace count. And they did. And there's also just that great pressure of expectation, the long championship drought. Nobody was letting them take the Constructors' Championship from the previous year as ending the drought. No one was counting back to 1983. People were counting back to the Drivers' Championship in 79 and Jody Schechter. So there was just this critical mass of pressure was building. It, it had to be done this year. Yeah, and I think it's, it's telling that Schumacher felt the need to say we're not in a crisis. I think any time we do this show... If there's any sort of run of bad form for Ferrari, it doesn't take long, particularly from the Italian media, for talk of a crisis to uh, occur inside Ferrari. And that's still the case today, isn't it? The pressure on Ferrari is absolutely relentless. Schumacher, though, wasn't only facing tough questions about his momentum in the championship, as his driving was once again under the spotlight, as Ben mentioned in the intro. And this was for Michael's famous start line chops, Schumacher's former Ferrari teammate, Eddie Irvine, was incredibly outspoken about this, calling Schumacher a bully. Irvine said Schumacher's driving was a safety issue that Michael should take seriously, and if not, he should resign as head of the Grand Prix Drivers Association. Irvine added, Michael will just carry on until something happens and there's an accident. What he's doing is not safe. I don't think he should be allowed to do what he does. Jacques Villeneuve rarely passed up a chance to stick the boot in on his old rival, so he waded in too, saying, it's always the same person doing it, but why should he stop? He always gets away with it. Most of us don't do it, even though we know we can. That's our ethics. Coulthard said the drivers needed to know where the line is, while Schumacher stood up for himself, saying the rules allowed what he did and that the rest of the drivers and the FIA's Charlie Whiting agreed with Schumacher's interpretation of the rules. What was your interpretation, Ed? Did the drivers speaking out against Schumacher have a point? Was he taking it too far by this stage? Yeah, I think they had a point in terms of the fact that Schumacher was changing the game in this period in terms of pushing back those boundaries of what was considered acceptable behaviour and literally pushing them back because that Schumacher chop was really not the done thing, but he made it acceptable. And then his rivals then started to feel they had to do it. 
ethically, Schumacher's approach was very much to push those boundaries and work on the basis that if you're not penalised, not punished, then that's fine. And that's that's a reasonable position to take because so many of these rules, they're not written rules or anything. They're just standards of behaviour. And you can argue in this period that those standards of behaviour that were created in a much more dangerous time could be pushed back a little bit given the safety improvements, etc. But yeah, there were times when the criticism was overblown. There were times when it was justified. And it was a big part of Schumacher's competitive uh, makeup. It depends on your perspective of what's right and wrong when it comes to racing ethics, where you're going to draw the line. But as is often the case, it's the murky middle, really, isn't it, that Schumacher was operating. And as Coulthard's quote mentioned, it wasn't that you weren't allowed to do it, but you were kind of not meant to. And that was what made it so infuriating for everyone because nobody could point to a rule saying, don't do this. They just all felt it was wrong. And Schumacher knew that. So he did what he could do. He wasn't punished as far as he was concerned. That was absolutely fine. And that's that's a reasonable position to take, but I completely get why it was winding some people up. And that's a good example of why these days the F1 rule book, whether it's technical, sporting, on-track manners or anything, why the rules are so chunky now and, and everyone complains that we've got too many rules. But the problem is if you don't have many rules, you can't get by on gentlemen's agreements and that sort of thing. Schumacher... Uh, was incredibly dismissive, though, of the criticism he received from Irvine and Villeneuve specifically. He was asked about it in the Thursday press conference at Hockenheim, and he said, I don't take them seriously. I don't want to discuss these comments at all. This is not the point for me. Let's talk about serious matters. Charlie Whiting has said, as long as you do it in a safe way, it's okay. And this is good. Uh, So what are we doing here? Is this Formula One or is it drinking coffee in a happy family situation? We are racing in a very hard and fair way. Nothing else. It has always been like this. And please don't suggest that it is only me who is doing it. That is completely untrue. Because if you look through the field, you will see many drivers doing it. Ferrari's Ross Braun jumped in as well, saying to the Daily Mail... Michael is not perfect, but the other drivers are no angels themselves. Villeneuve's standards are much worse and he has been guilty of disgusting tactics on occasions. Yet I have never heard Michael complain, not even in the privacy of our own motorhome. He just gets on with his job. All these guys should keep their mouths shut and prove what they can do on the track instead of all this rubbish they come up with. Michael is an easy target. Ben, some strong stuff there from Michael and Ross. Were they right to point the finger back at those criticising Schumacher's driving? Uh, well, I don't think so. I'm I'm interested in what Schumacher said about Villeneuve and Irvine when he said, uh, I don't take them seriously. Was he referring to the drivers or just the things they were saying? Probably both, I think. I, think. <laughs> I don't think he had the greatest of respect for those two. Um, I think it's one of those classic situations where the team is going to defend its driver, especially when... As Ed pointed out, there's no rule forbidding what Schumacher was doing. He was definitely uh, skating on the edge of what was acceptable in terms of etiquette. Um, but watching all the and watching all the starts back, it's quite funny to see how pretty much every car on the grid drives in a straight line off the grid spot, regardless of how good their start is. While Schumacher is just veering across from one side of the track to the other whenever he makes a bad start. So you can you can understand why everyone was getting quite annoyed with it. They were all having to take evasive action when he was wheel spinning his way off the grid. Um, but I don't think they're really justified in hitting back against those accusing Schumacher. But I can understand why they would, because if people are unhappy, you want to try and destabilise 
your rivals, especially a guy who's so formidable as Schumacher. And I can also understand why he and Braun would just be completely dismissive when they know the rules back them up. I should say Schumacher was really good at doing that chop as well, not in terms of his willingness to do it. But if you in the start phase are moving across the track at a reasonable angle, you can limit your traction a bit. In fact, DC gave an example of this with what he tried to do at the start of the race we're about to talk about. And it's an underrated thing that Schumacher could do that chop while not compromising his starts too much by uh, by limiting himself too much on traction. It's just a, a very uh, underrated aspect of Schumacher's game. That's a really good point. I, I hadn't considered that before. So yeah, Probably the reason others weren't doing it is because they couldn't they couldn't pull across the track without losing loads of uh, loads of time. Uh, as for the, I love the happy family situation uh, line. I wonder if that applied when Ralph Schumacher started joining him on the front row of races more in two thousand and one, and Michael was trying to put him in the pit wall. That's a story for another time. Ferrari were also in a war of words with McLaren, of course, uh, which was rumbling on in this case from the Austrian Grand Prix. McLaren had been stripped of 10 constructors points when Hakkinen's race-winning car was found to be missing an FIA seal on its ECU. McLaren boss Ron Dennis was outraged that Ferrari sent a letter to the FIA, which he believed called for both McLarens to be thrown out of the race. Dennis said there is no mechanism in the regulations for a letter like this to be forwarded, but any top team is more than capable of knowing what it is doing in forwarding such a letter to the stewards. Some people will go to any lengths to win, but for us, that would devalue the win itself. I don't know what Ferrari think about McLaren, but I have to say I don't have much respect for Ferrari. Ferrari are obviously going to go to extremes in their search for victory. Ferrari defended itself, saying they requested permission to write to the stewards, and that permission was granted. And Ross Braun said the letter only called for the cars to be excluded if the FIA established that McLaren had access to its ECU password. And once it was established that McLaren didn't have access to the software after it should have been sealed, Ferrari considered the matter closed. Ferrari president Luca de Montezemolo piled in too, saying Ferrari's behaviour was open and honest and that Ron's reaction was somewhat rash given Ferrari had permission to write the letter and McLaren were shown the letter before the hearing over the Austria situation. I guess in some ways, Ben, this was something over nothing in many ways. Was, it, was this a prime example of just the intensity of the McLaren-Ferrari rivalry spilling over and perhaps showing us how easy it was to, 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 to make mountains out of molehills for these guys? Yeah, I think this is this is peak Ron, isn't it? It shows how easy it is to wind him up. Certainly, um, there should be a re- there should be a regulation about who can write letters and when and forward them to who. Like this is like the the biggest nonsense you could have, I think. And I don't really see how it's much different to McLaren moaning about Ferrari's barge boards the year before in Malaysia. And Ferrari said, that. and you know. McLaren surely would have taken that further had the FIA not already been kind of investigating that. It didn't work out the way McLaren wanted it to, but this is just par for the course. It seems tame in a modern context to be discussing this kind of thing, really, because it happens all the time. Teams are constantly questioning what the others are doing, trying to get one over them, trying to get the FA to clamp down on things they think are not being done properly. So, yeah, I don't really uh, pay any credence to what Ron was saying there. He's, uh, he's just frustrated because he got caught out and lost some points. 
Further down the grid, Peugeot decided to finally put itself out of its F1 misery by officially quitting F1, selling its entire F1 operation, including facilities and staff, to Asia Motor Technologies, which would continue to run the engines as AsiaTechs. For now, they will focus on Peugeot as its president, Frederic Sanjurs, gave some very robust quotes in a press conference around this time. He said, I want one thing to be made totally clear, and that is that we are pulling out of Formula One for good. In life, one must never say never, but if you want my opinion, it is that Peugeot will never race again in Formula One. We came to this decision way back in November 1999 because we simply do not believe that the massive investments in Formula One are justified by the returns. I maintain that even though we are in a period when many major manufacturers are deciding to enter Formula One, we have the right to have a different opinion and to adopt different sporting and commercial strategies. Formula One is not for us. Ed, was he right? Well, he was right that Peugeot uh, wouldn't ever come back into Formula One. At least he hasn't been proven wrong yet. And they haven't been anywhere near it uh, uh, since then. If F1 keeps going long enough and Peugeot keeps existing, I imagine one day their paths will cross. But yeah, the whole thing was was a bit of a mess. I don't think Peugeot fundamentally was necessarily doomed to failure, but certainly this whole Prost-Peugeot project was pretty much doomed. We've talk pretty much every season on multiple episodes about various Alain Prost French super team dreams. And then, of course, the great irony is when it happened, it really, really didn't work. And obviously, Peugeot was part of that. It was so political. It didn't really work. It's a shame, really, because there were times when Peugeot made very good progress. There were times when it was claimed to be the most powerful engine in Formula One. It was certainly up there. I think it could have justified the investment for Peugeot, but it just didn't It just didn't work as it should have done. Obviously, started off with McLaren, it was a little bit embarrassing initially, but they made some good progress. Jordan, similar sort of thing, and then the whole Prost thing, just what it was. So I think probably they did make the right decision because they were going nowhere with that particular team, and we shouldn't forget how politicised the whole thing was. The French government was getting involved in incentivising people to do stuff, and promises weren't kept allegedly which is a shocking revelation when there's politicians involved so probably best for them to have uh, to have got out while Peugeot was walking away other manufacturers like Toyota were on the way in and F1 appeared to be on the verge of greater manufacturer influence behind the scenes as well with all the big hitting car firms involved in F1 in talks at this point to buy up possibly as much as 40% of Bernie Eccleston's company that held the commercial rights to F1 FIA President Max Mosley backed this idea, telling automotive magazine Autocar, we've been pushing this idea for some time and I think it is certainly possible. The car industry has already already has a huge involvement in F1 and this proposed move makes sense. I feel it would be a stabilising influence within the sport and the structure of F1 would ensure that they wouldn't be able to influence the rulemaking process. Mercedes motorsport boss Norbert Haug also felt it was a good idea saying the more manufacturers who had a direct involvement with what Norbert called some kind of influence would be better for F1. This never happened for reasons we won't dwell on here, although we did discuss it in our Spain 2001 episode in a bit more detail, and that also tells you how long this rumbled on for. Ed, let's imagine this had happened. Would it have been... Good for F1 if Ford, Daimler Chrysler, Fiat, Toyota, BMW and Honda had all held a stake in the championship. Well, of that list, 
Ford, Toyota, BMW and Honda were all gone not so many years after this point. So perhaps not ideal. Now, if they had a stake, that would change the dynamic. So you could argue that if they did own a chunk of it collectively and, of course, work together properly, then maybe that would mean better commitment and it could have created greater stability and growth for Formula One. But I don't think car makers having a big collective stake in F1 is a good idea. I think it would have descended into lunacy politics. We know how political the car manufacturers can be with each other and this would just be throwing it open to influences throughout the boardrooms of the world if you see what I mean so yeah I don't think it would have been a good idea and remember there were talks about manufacturer breakaways for years as late as 2009 it never really seemed like a good idea and I don't think you can say that manufacturers are the key to stability and sustained growth if that's what you're after in Formula One history tells us that's not the case doesn't mean the ownership model was correct, but just because an ownership model as is isn't necessarily right doesn't mean that any alternative is a way to go. So best to be avoided. Let's move on from manufacturers then to drivers. As the end of July meant there was all kinds of activity in the driver market. And the biggest story as F1 arrived at Hockenheim was that Jacques Villeneuve had signed a new deal to stay at BAR, turning down serious interest from Benetton. Craig Pollock, who was BAR boss and Villeneuve's manager, said this was a significant vote of confidence in the team and it showed Villeneuve shared the belief that this is an organisation with which he can win races and ultimately the World Championship in the future. Villeneuve didn't necessarily back those ambitious claims up uh, when he spoke, but he made sure to put pressure on BAR, saying... The team has to be competitive. If not, I will walk away. It needs quite a big improvement. We need to be fighting at the front. He also said it wasn't an easy decision to stay because he had other good options. And at BAR, he said, I've had two difficult years where promises didn't really come true. But I have been working hard on this project and it is going to be nice to see it come to fruition. Benetton boss Flavio Briatore said, His talks with Villeneuve went on until the day before the new BAR deal was signed. Flavio said he was trying very hard to convince Villeneuve to make the switch. Flavio also said he had no hard feelings towards Jack, adding, The relationship is as good as it has ever been and the doors are not closed. I won't give up and we'll speak again next year. Ben, given BAR was having a much better season in 2000 than that dreadful first year. Did it at least feel like Villeneuve was committing to a team that was heading in the right direction? Yeah, I think so. Um, It was very tight between BAR, Honda and Benetton that year. Um, Villeneuve and Fisichella were quite often roughly in the same position on the grid. Not much to choose between the cars. Not not much to choose between them in the championship either. Um, Hindsight obviously tells you that maybe it was a mistake and he should have at least tried to go and wrest control of that team from Fernando Alonso down the line. Um, and ultimately, he did end up there. So it did all work out for Flavio in a roundabout way. Um, but I think at the time, you know, Villeneuve was very comfortable in that project. He'd literally sunk his own money into it. Um, it would have taken a lot, I think, to, to for him to give that up, especially when the competitive difference wasn't so great between the team he was with and the team he could have gone to. Um, I was a little bit surprised that at that point in time, Briatore's agreed the Renault deal. So although it's not immediate, it's coming, that manufacturer tie-up. And obviously Villeneuve had a good relationship with Renault. He won his world title with Renault Power. Maybe if they bought Williams, he'd have gone for it. 
That's an interesting point. And uh, the less said about when Villeneuve finally did go to Team Endstone in 2004, the better. That's not high <laughs> on the list of upcoming episodes. Villeneuve has given a couple of very revealing interviews about what went on when he decided to turn Benetton and, as Ben said there, Renault down for BAR that summer. In an interview in 2005 with F1 Racing's Matt Bishop, Villeneuve said it was a mistake to sign that second deal with BAR, even if BAR outperformed Benetton, which had its own horrible year in 2001. He elaborated on why he made that mistake on the F1 Beyond the Grid podcast with Tom Clarkson. Villeneuve said he was all set to sign Briatore's contract with his engineer Jock Clear coming along with him too. But Jack said Pollock was in tears, saying, if you don't stay with BAR, the whole project dies and I lose my job. Villeneuve said that was what changed his mind. He said that was the first time I didn't follow my own instinct, that I didn't do what I was wanting to do, and I paid the price. Ed, how big was that error for Villeneuve's career? Would things have turned out better if he'd gone to Benetton ahead of the rebrand into Renault? It's actually a really difficult question to answer because it would have gone one of two ways. One, it's short-term pain because the following year's car was not very competitive, but long-term gain because by 2003, they're winning races, by 2005, winning world championships. So perhaps Jacques Villeneuve wins more races, maybe even wins a world championship. The other path is short-term pain and then just more pain because he falls out with Briatore. Everything goes wrong. 2001 would be all about, well, they're struggling. Look, Villeneuve's struggling. He's down towards the back. And it all goes wrong for that reason. So my concern is it's it's quite a big gap to bridge across. There's two years of not winning before they get to the point where they can. So the question is, would Villeneuve still have been there? And how would it work with Alonso? And I think the key dynamic there would have been Villeneuve and Briatore. We know that Briatore made life difficult sometimes for drivers who weren't his drivers. Maybe Villeneuve would have needed to full-on become a proper Briatore driver to facilitate this. We don't know that was the case, but very possibly. So, I don't know. I'm inclined to think probably it wouldn't have worked just because I think Jacques Villeneuve's career was so ill-starred after his world championship. Probably whatever he did, it was going to not quite worked out for him. But clearly, he stayed at BAR for the wrong reasons and he's realised that so that was his his mistake he probably should have made the move and see how it worked out because we know how it went with BAR and even if Benetton had gone wrong that wouldn't have been much worse than being spat out by BAR a couple of years down the line would it? Yeah that's a good point and if he'd gone to Benetton and Renault we would be having a conversation now about how he should have stayed at BAR and that team could have been a lot better so uh, but yeah whatever he did was going to be wrong. The seat Villeneuve passed up at Benetton, of course, went to Jensen Button, who uh, had to be moved aside at Williams to make room for Juan Pablo Montoya, which we talked about in our Spa 2000 episode. Button would end up taking Alex Wurtz's seat at Benetton. And over the Hockenheim weekend, Wurtz hit out at rumours that he was going to lose his seat before the end of the season. Wurtz was quoted in Motoring News as saying, I will be driving with Benetton until the end of the season. I am sick and tired of having to deny a new rumour every weekend. Wurtz offered his version of events on what went wrong for him in 2000 in an interview with Motorsport magazine in 2011. He said Benetton's 2000 car was 15 kilograms overweight and the team had a lightweight qualifying car, which he wasn't given a chance to drive until the last race of the year. And he said he fell out with Briatore because he refused to sign a management contract that would be backdated 
So Briatore would get a cut of Wurtz's earlier earnings. It's quite fitting given Ed talked about if Villeneuve would have had to sign a Briatore contract. Flavio liked to uh, have his hands in many, many different pots, pies, whatever you want to say. Um, and on that note, uh, Wurtz said he became McLaren's test driver in 2001 because he wanted to drive for a team where there was no contractual influence by Flavio. But, Ed, looking at that move he made, did Wurtz deserve to find another race seat for 2001? Was it was it fair that after that Benetton stint, he was cast into the shadows, really? It's one of those ones where on paper it's difficult to argue he should have done because the performance did look pretty bad from the outside. But knowing what we know about it, there was talk about the chassis at the time, but you never know whether that's genuine or whether that's just excuses, etc., etc. But it does seem to be uh, legitimate. And it was a real shame because it was a long way from the really promising driver that broke into F1 with that brief stint standing in for Gerhard Berger in 97. And he started well when he was a full-time driver as well. So... Certainly, Verts could have done a decent job in another team in, in Formula One. But yeah, the performance on track combined with the Briatori factor made it very, very difficult. I don't think he was too hard done by ending up as McLaren tester, though, because this was the, the era of the super test driver quite early in it. And he was well paid to do a lot of mileage for McLaren, play a key part in that team. And it's a job that's really well suited to Alex Wurtz's skill set. Very intelligent driver, great development driver, very technical. I don't think he's the fastest driver in the world. So I think in Formula One, he would have been, you know, you'd say he's a good, solid, decent midfield driver, but not a future world champion. So I wonder if career-wise, actually, he did better spending all those years as as McLaren uh, test driver, even though, as you said, he was in the shadows. So... Probably for his his career long term, it wasn't actually so bad. Yeah, whatever the shenanigans alleged behind the scenes at the team, and I can well believe Flavio was playing favourites. He liked to do that, as we know. I think it's worth remembering Wurtz was the incumbent in that team since 97 when Alessi and Berger were basically wasting the last decent Benetton Renaults that existed. And Fisichella had already spent two and a half seasons basically handing Wurtz's ass to him. He like he destroyed him ten. He was destroying him in qualifying ten six. I think it was in ninety eight. Then thirteen three in ninety nine. It was nine one heading into Germany. So the momentum is definitely not with Wurtz. And given the merry go rounds and possible seats in other teams being being available, he wasn't being looked at as a serious option really elsewhere either. So I think his stock was falling, and probably to a certain extent, Benetton were going with the rising star of Fisichella for good reason. But I do think, as Ed says, what Wurtz did subsequently with different teams and cameo appearances, he was probably a bit better than he looked at this point in 2000. Yeah, it's a good point. I think whatever happens, whatever the circumstances, Fisichella is going to outperform Alex Wurtz in qualifying in particular over a season pretty convincingly over time. So yeah, you make a good point about Wurtz hadn't made a compelling case. It's just the fact that he did bang it fifth on the grid when he got the the lightweight car that's that just showed that actually there was some pace there because of, of course as soon as you're not qualifying well you're on the back foot but yeah he wasn't denied a great world championship winning career by this let's put it that way another driver sorting out his future around this time was Heitzeld Fredson who signed a two-year extension with Jordan for 2001 and 02. Fredson and Jordan hadn't kicked on from their 1999 title charge but Eddie Jordan hailed Frentzen as the team's most successful driver and said he was expected to play a key role in challenging for the title again in 2001. 
Jordan was feeling that ambitious because it had secured works Honda engines for 2001 and Frentzen said that was a significant step forward that would allow Jordan to reach the highest level. Now, Ben, a year after this new deal was signed, almost exactly a year after it was signed, Frentzen was sacked by Jordan. Were there any signs, do you think, at this point that things might be heading in the wrong direction or did the Honda deal at this stage mean that probably we all felt 2000 was going to be the blip for Jordan. Yeah, I think maybe the Honda engine, as it turned out, was a bit of a sticking plaster. Um, at this point, uh, Jordan started off quite well. They were the third fastest team, clearly, which is not a bad place to be in, pretty similar to the, the end of the previous season. Decent result in Brazil, front row at Silverstone, 2 4 on the grid, but with Trulli ahead at Monaco, but just like awful reliability in the races. And often, reliability that wasn't related to the engine either. There's like hydraulics issues and just silly car slip-ups basically that's costing him a lot of points. Also, Trulli's beginning to assert himself as maybe the faster driver. So I think there were signs of a backward slip for Frentzen at that team. Um, I also think that 99 was an outlier really in his career. Um, so I think the expectations were unrealistic um, of Jordan expecting him to go on and be a genuine title contender for years to come. Also for the team as well, because they punched massively above their weight the year before this. So I think everyone just basically got a bit too excited and 2000 was more of a, a bump back down to earth kind of moment. And as been mentioned before, Heinz Alfredson was getting a bit too involved on the technical side, which was, as people who've worked with him said, was never necessarily a great thing. Really good driver, but he tended to get a little bit lost when he got a bit over-invested in that. Yeah, and as I say, but by, by the time F1 was back at Hockenheim a year later, he wasn't even in the car anymore. Johnny Herbert announced his retirement from F1 ahead of the German Grand Prix, stating his intention to go to America and find a driving cart, which he hoped would also lead to a chance to do the Indy 500. Of course, this was when Kart and the Indy Racing League were split in America, so, and we were just at the point where uh, teams were starting to cross the divide to go back to Indy. Speaking about the decision to retire, Herbert said in his book that he wished he'd done it at the end of 1999 instead, because deep down then he knew it was over, but he'd suppressed it to carry on in 2000. He added, I'd come to a point in my F1 career where I felt like I needed to constantly prove myself to other people, which took away most of the enjoyment and left me with a little bit of a chip on my shoulder. I had too much baggage, good and bad, and that hindered my ability to focus fully on the racing side. Neither my heart nor my head was in it, and my addiction to a sport which had given me so much pleasure since 1989 had all but disappeared. I hated not enjoying Formula One. Being involved was nothing less than a privilege, and I should have been grateful, not resentful. I knew I still wanted to drive, but it had to be in a new environment, somewhere I wasn't seen as yesterday's man. It felt strange saying goodbye, very strange. Most importantly, however, it felt right, and because of this, I had no regrets. It's an interesting point though, Ed. Do you think many drivers get the timing of when to stop absolutely right? Very, very few. Ultimately, the majority don't actually have the luxury of deciding when to stop. Some Great. miss out in the game of musical chairs and that's it. Some realise they're about to miss out in that game of musical chairs and preemptively retire. So it's all tied up nicely in a bow and it looks like their choice, but they're not necessarily that happy. We can only really judge in, in competitive terms and probably the ideal time to stop is you know, at a point where 
you're still being successful. Maybe you've crested and you're in a little bit of decline, shall we say. But it's really tough, as, as Herbert explained, and it's not necessarily easy to see that in the moment, is it? The driver that always springs to mind, and I'm, I'm drifting back into bring back Cosworth engines and Hewland gearboxes territory here, is, is, is Jackie Stewart, who did retire at the top and didn't seem to look back. But of course, even then, he retired a race early in the end, thanks to the, the tragedy of Francois Sauvert. So yeah, it's just one of those things. Elite sport's a messy business. Individuals, I think, are best placed to judge it. And we won't necessarily know from the outside what's best for them. If you can go out on your own terms, be happy with it, look back and say, yeah, that was right, then that's a big win, isn't it? But how do you do it? You know, Herbert might have had a different experience had the Jaguar been as competitive as expected in 2000, because that's the other factor. Very often, for a driver who's been around for a long time, might be towards the end of their career, they can keep it up while the performance is still there. But a difficult season just can tear it out from under you. So yeah, what we can never really fairly evaluate from the outside, but percentage of F1 drivers who get the timing right and have that opportunity, very, very small. Yeah, I tried to think of a few recent examples uh, and there aren't many. Nico Rosberg springs to mind as somebody obviously shocked the world by retiring just after he'd won his world championship. Maybe Kimi Raikkonen, who kind of got to stop when he wanted to, to spend more time with his family. And of the current... After a long decline. After a long decline, yeah. Not maybe getting the timing right, but at least going out on his own terms. Uh, and then also of the current crop, maybe Hakkinen and DC. Hakkinen stopped when I think McLaren wanted him to carry on. Uh, and DC was able to announce his retirement just before Red Bull were able to announce that Vettel was taking his seat for the following year. So he maybe just about squeaked in uh, the choice. And he went on for a long time, obviously retired at 37. So... Um, you could argue those, but yeah, very difficult to think of clear-cut examples. And even people like Hakkinen had a vague dalliance with a comeback, didn't they? So you never know. Does Nico Rosberg think it was right? Who knows? It'd probably be a few years down the line before he might admit it publicly if, if he felt it wasn't the, the right thing to do. So it's really, really tough. And worst of all, I actually don't think the individual's involved necessarily can judge it correctly you know it's not dissimilar to things everyone I guess experiences in their life at, at times if they have to make a decision about moving on from something so yeah once you add the pressure of F1 being elite sport it's it's almost impossible and it's probably luck if you get it right much easier with hindsight which I think could be a tagline of this show we get to sit here and judge what people <laughs> did 20 30 years ago um, but I'm sure we'd have got it wrong at the time as well Let's get into the race weekend then. Bad weather at Hockenheim meant we had a mixed up grid in, in some places, although it was still Coulthard and Schumacher on the front row with DC on pole. Hakkinen was only fourth, sandwiched between the unlikely pairing of Fissi Keller's Benetton in third and Pedro De La Rosa's Arrows in fifth. Barrichello had a nightmare qualifying. His car stopped with an electrical problem on his first run and he had to wait for Schumacher's damaged car from practice to be repaired while Schumacher qualified the spare car. Rubens missed the best of the conditions and he was down in 18th, sharing the ninth row of the grid with Frentzen's Jordan. At the start, Coulthard gave Schumacher a taste of his own medicine with a chop off the line and as Ed said, not quite as well executed as Michael's were. But that allowed Hakkinen to storm through from fourth on the grid into the lead at turn one. Then at the first corner, as Schumacher moved across to take the racing line, Fissi Keller ran into the back of him, taking them both out. Fissi Keller criticised Schumacher for not sticking to his line, although Schumacher said Fissi later apologised. 
Schumacher added, Fisichella should have been careful. He is behind. He is the person who has to watch out for cars in front of him. You have to adapt to circumstances, and he clearly didn't do that good enough. Ed, I know you've been agonising over this one. What do you think of this crash then? Who was at fault, if anyone? Yeah, it is a tricky one. I think fundamentally you file it under racing accident. So if it happens right now, you'd have to say no penalty. But it all comes down to who's done what to maximise their chances, should we say, in this scenario. Schumacher did put himself in a difficult position. And when I say things like that, people say I'm trying to blame them completely for it. But Schumacher could legitimately move across there. He moved across genuinely in front of Fisichella, but at a point where it was high risk. There was a good chance a car was going to come into the back of him at that point. He may have misjudged how close Fisichella was. I suspect that might be the case, actually. But whatever happens, it put him in harm's way, and then that harm followed. So I don't think he played, He maximised his chances of getting maximise his chance of getting through that first corner uh, safely because Fisichella didn't have much time to react. So racing accident, but it's let the buyer beware, isn't it? If, if you're going to do that quite late before the first corner, particularly with that profile of, of first corner as well, you know there's a chance that will happen. So no penalty, but yeah, you took the risk. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. Yeah, that is an accident we've seen uh, quite a few times at that corner. So uh, yeah, it can happen. The first half of the race was pretty straightforward after that. The McLarens disappeared up the road, running first and second, while Barrichello charged through to third, running a light fuel load as he chose to stop twice to make up places on track of a lighter car while everyone else was stopping once. However, that all changed when a spectator appeared at the side of the track between the first corner and the first chicane. Uh, the man was wearing, well, we've debated this already, was it, you know, Ben said it was a poncho, let's go with that. He's wearing a poncho with a message protesting his dismissal by Mercedes-Benz after more than 20 years of working for them. Um, and Ed referenced the, the message that was on the back. Supposedly it said that he'd been working for them uh, yeah, for all this time and had then been offered uh been offered a new role that he couldn't take up due to health reasons that Mercedes knew about and then they released him on health reasons uh un basically an unhappy disgruntled former employee that's a lot to put on a uh, on a t-shirt or a poncho it's no wonder no one could see the message well, that's why that's why we thought it was a bed sheet it was so <laughs> big I, I don't know where he found one that size but uh if if his plan was to mess up Mercedes race as we mentioned it works because the McLarens were half a minute clear of the field when his appearance brought the safety car out and wiped out their advantage. And even worse for McLaren, Coulthard didn't hear the call to pit, so he had to do another lap behind the safety car and then rejoined down the field in sixth. Ron Dennis said afterwards, our strategy was flexible, but not flexible enough to allow for a deranged spectator. Mercedes boss Norbert Howe called it a scandal because it emerged the man had tried to get onto the track at turn one, just before the start of the formation lap, and he'd then not been detained by police. Ross Braun said it should never be allowed to happen again, but he had some sympathy for the organisers, saying the trouble is the public do have access, particularly at a place like this, because it's in the forest. Ed, where do you stand on all this? Is it is it fair to say it's impossible to police the entirety of the old Hockenheim out in the forest? Or does that excuse become redundant 
when you realise that they've already stopped him trying to get onto the track once before. Yeah, it's rendered completely redundant because you don't have to police the whole rest of the track. You just have to police this one person wrapped in a bedsheet <laughs> in cling film. You know, he signalled his intention and determination to do it. So, of course, he's going to try and do it again. So it's probably a good idea to keep an eye on him for the next 90 minutes, two hours, to ensure he's nowhere near the circuit. I'm not sure exactly what happened, whether he was just let to head off whether he gave him the slip or whether he wasn't properly detained well clearly he wasn't properly detained and it, yeah it, it was very very stupid all credit to him given his objective for, <laughs> for having a, another go at it now we can't condone this because it is hugely dangerous not just to his life it's endangering the lives of others categorically not right but you can respect the determination and we should say he did turn out he had a point because i think he won his case in the end didn't he it was considered that the way he was dismissed wasn't quite right. So his message actually was good, if any of us could, of course, have, have read it had he got his sign writing right. <laughs> so, yeah, it should never have happened. I can accept if one person in any F1 circuit wants to get onto the track and they're really determined to do so, it can be very difficult to stop them. They'll need a, maybe a little bit of luck. But if they pick their spot and they're determined, you just have to accept, yeah, that can happen. But once you've signalled your intent, doesn't matter where you are you've got to make absolutely sure you've got them under control so that was a really bad mistake and if the worst had happened it'd been very interesting to see what the consequences would have been because you know this is coming once you've stopped it once so yeah not good Once racing resumed, it wasn't long before the safety car was out again after a scary crash for John Alesi. He slammed into the barriers at the third chicane and was then subjected to a dizzying number of 360-degree spins along, along the barriers. Alesi was raging after this. As we mentioned at the top of the show, he threw his helmet into the ground as he walked away from the wreckage. He blamed Pedro Diniz for moving over on him on the approach to the chicane. And Alesi was a doubt for the next race in Hungary because the accident was so severe. After the race weekend, Alesi said, I can still feel pain all over my body, especially abdominal pain, because my first impact with the guardrail after Diniz had ripped off my wheel was almost frontal. Nothing is broken, but I don't feel very well and I'm going to have some more tests. It is my intention to be present in Budapest, but I will never be able to race in my current condition. Ben, just how violent was this accident? I feel like the... The shot of Alacy endlessly spinning is pretty famous, but is it easy to overlook what must have been the speed of that first impact with the wall? Yeah, I think that's typical of that era's Hockenheim, a track that is much, 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 much faster than it looks on TV. Uh, and that crash, it gets worse the closer the replays get to the car. The initial off you see it from a kind of distance and you think, oh, that's a bit silly. Oh, he's gone off into the barrier. That's unfortunate. And then you see these slow motion replays of his head shaking violently as the car's smashing itself to bits and rotating. And you think to yourself, surely that's a concussion. That's a really, really violent accident, awful accident. He's really, really lucky not to be seriously hurt. And I would say, looking at the way Denise drove, Murray said the protester was Mr. Halfwit, but I think Pedro Diniz is a close second in this race. The nature of that impact pre-hands, it's, it's a basal skull fracture candidate, isn't it? I think because it wasn't quite as head-on as it might have been, probably made that difference. But those are the accidents you've got to really watch out for because that, that injury has taken so many lives. So yeah, really, really serious, particularly pre-hands. 
Yeah, and, and you mentioned the concussion aspect there. We we know we know much more about concussions today. There were reports at the time that Alacy had, had vomited after the accident as well. So clearly, uh, clearly in a bad place, and that probably wasn't just because he was dizzy after all the spins. So racing resumed again after that safety car period. It wasn't long before rain hit the stadium end of the track, making the final part of the lap, plus the pit straight and turn one, wet. Of the front runners, Hakkinen and Trilly pitted for wets from first and second, as did De La Rosa from fourth. He was having a great race. But Barrichello, Coulthard and Frentzen stayed out. Coulthard then bailed, deciding that the risk was too big on slicks when he was fighting for a championship, while Frentzen then broke down, so we never got to see how his race would have played out. And that put Hakkinen back up to second. But in the lead, Barrichello held his nerve. He's told various versions of this story over the years, and it seems that the more distance there is since the race, the more of an argument he had with Ross Braun about staying out. But the basic facts are that Braun called Barrichello in for wets because everyone else was coming in. And Rubens said no because he felt the rest of the track was dry enough. Barrichello's earlier version of the story is that Braun then said, OK, if you can keep doing those lap times, you're going to win. While in recent years, he said Braun said it was impossible to stay out and Barrichello just refused. But Braun has always backed up that it was Barrichello's decision. And on the day, Ross said, I didn't try to argue with him because it was worth a chance and it worked. Ed, given where Barrichello had come from on the grid, was he kind of in a nothing to lose situation here? Or are the stakes too high when your first ever F1 win is potentially on the table here? I suspect his mindset was a little bit nothing to lose. He was the number two driver there. He knew wins were going to be hard to come by. But also, I just think he used his his best judgment. The funny thing is, with Rubens, is most of his Ferrari-era wins have some kind of story of how he overcame the team, whether it's on strategy or tyre choice or something. In 2010, I did a, a season of track guides with him. So every few races, I sit down with him when we go over the next few circuits. And one of the things we did was talk about his best moment at that track. And if there was a Ferrari success, very often... It was one of these. It was like, well, the team wanted me to do this, but I knew better. And in fact, the quote he gave me was, the team kept telling me I was crazy. I remember thinking that maybe I was the sober one because everyone else is crazy. <laughs> but to actually answer the question, yeah, I do think it was just using his best judgment. You have to remember that when it comes to these kinds of conditions, Barrichello was really good because the key is about judging the available grip so that you can then drive to the correct pace. That means you load up the tyres correctly, you're putting the energy through the tyres, you're keeping them warm, you don't get the tyre temperature drop off and struggle. So if you can judge that grip, stay on the track, go quick enough, keep the temperature in the tyres, particularly given it was only one part of the track that was really wet, as you can see from the footage, you can make it work. That was really difficult, but Rubens was really good at that. So I think this call was just his best judgment. In that situation, it is the driver's call, unless the pit wall knows there's worse weather coming, in which case you say, no, there's a massive amount of rain about to come on the track. You've got to come in. But at that point, you just have to let your driver go for it. And Rubens was absolutely right in really difficult conditions because quite a few people went off in that phase of the race. I think it was a pretty marginal call, especially given how the weather worsened towards the end. I also think Barrichello was just on one in this race. He's probably one of the best drivers of his career. He had the confidence to make the slicks work in the wet, as Ed, Ed said. Whereas the McLarens, uh, I think particularly Coulthards, they looked quite short on traction. Even earlier in the race in the dry, he was struggling to get the power down out of the chicanes. Whereas the Ferrari looked a lot more planted. DC said the McLaren in that phase of the season was quick, but quite hard to drive. And it did look that 
way. So I think things snowballed in a bad way for DC once the, the weather changed, whereas Rubens was able to just spend a bit longer knowing he had a more pliable car just to work things out. Still a gutsy call to overrule the team when so much is on the line. I mean, we need a bit more of that from Ferrari now, really. Well, we get it from Carlos Sainz, don't we? (laughs) (laughs) Barrichello was also involved in the moment uh, that ended Trulli's hopes of a podium finish. The Jordan driver was given a penalty for passing Barrichello under the safety car earlier on as the Ferrari was exiting the pits while Trulli was coming out of turn one. Trulli said the rules around those scenarios weren't clear as he ended up side by side with Barrichello. So he, he, didn't, he felt he didn't make a deliberate attempt to overtake him. However, he did admit to moving across the track to close the door to protect his position, which Jano felt might have worked against him in the eyes of the officials. A devastated Trulli added, it's too difficult to judge that kind of situation. I was already on my racing line and he came out. How can I know? If it's a 50-50, who gives up? Eddie Jordan complained that the process didn't seem to be clear and the team wanted the penalty clarified after the race, saying we deserve better. But Ben, do you think this is just an example of an area of safety car process that F1 perhaps hadn't fully worked out? back then was truly right that it wasn't clear who would have to back off in that situation yeah i think there's an element of that although i think when you're in under those conditions and you're the car behind and then a car comes out of the pits that's ahead of you and you think it's marginal it's probably not the most sensible course of action to think yeah i'm just going to take the place block him and then hope i get away with it you probably need to err on the side of caution in those situations because the penalties really draconian in that era. You know, he got a 10 second stop go, I think, didn't he? So, you know, that's race over. It's not our oh, five seconds that we can argue the toss over or maybe eke the time out before the race is over to get away with it. But that said, things are different now and um, the clarity is greater. You know, we had a situation in Saudi Arabia earlier this year where Perez and Sainz were quite marginal in this situation on the pit exit. And there was a lot of chat back and forth about do I concede the position? Do I take the position? And in the end, the team were able to thrash things out without the need for a penalty. So I think it's one of those situations where you need better communication between the teams, drivers and F1. And subsequently, subsequently we have had that. But in this situation, we didn't. And I think truly another marginal call, but he just made the wrong decision. There's some more epistolary, if that's the word, letter-based annoyance, let's put it that way, because apparently Jean Tot emailed Race Control to tell them about it, and there was some annoyance about that. So Ferrari have annoyed people by sending letters and by sending emails. So 20, 20th century and 21st century <laughs> technology at work for Ferrari. And then he sent a telegram about something else as well. Good job Ron didn't hear about that email. He'd have been outraged on Eddie Jordan's behalf. For the remaining laps of the race... Barrichello's pace around the dry parts of the track was quick enough to pretty much keep the gap to Hakkinen static at around 9 or 10 seconds. And it was only on the last lap that he tiptoed home and the gap went from 11 to 7 seconds at the flag. Barrichello said he'd almost lost the taste of winning having waited so long for his first F1 victory. He added, I had been told that when you are leading the race, the last lap is the longest and it really felt like it to me. As we said at the start, there were plenty of tears afterwards on the radio and on the podium. Barrichello said he was thinking of Ayrton Senna and of all the sacrifices his dad had to make just so he could keep racing carts back in Brazil. 
On the Monday after the race, he told Autosports Andrew Benson about the pressure of picking up the mantle in Brazil after Senna's death. Barrichello said, I hid for such a long time because I had this weight on my shoulders from Ayrton. I didn't want to be another Ayrton. I just wanted Brazil to know I was capable and that it might take time, but it would happen. I was too young back then. Ed, Barrichello was only 21 when Senna died. How hard must it have been for him to suddenly be the driver Brazil was looking to in its in its hour of need when yeah, he, he was still finding his feet in F1? This was just his second season. Yeah, massively, massively difficult because not only had there been this long line of successful Brazilian drivers going back to Fittipaldi through PK, uh, through to Senna, but also Ayrton Senna was not just an F1 star, wasn't just a sporting star, he was a cultural phenomenon in Brazil. And Rubens was perfectly placed to pick up the baton because he got his first podium at Pacific Grand Prix in 94, just before the events of, of Imola. And then, of course, he'd spent a long time doing a good job, but not in race-winning machinery. So that lack of winning just led to that greater expectation. And Rubens is an emotional character. Just check out the footage, if you can find it, of him getting a, a V8 stock car passenger ride from one of his sons. I think it's Duda. It gives, it gives him a ride and, and Rubens just completely loses it because it's just such an emotional experience for him. That's the kind of character he is. And I have no doubt he felt that every day and you see that with his sort of little antics on the podium which obviously we didn't see so often uh, at that stage they got a little bit old when he kept doing them but yeah it was a huge huge moment for him and for Brazil and he did have that connection with Senna as well from from those days Senna had, had helped him a little bit so they did have a bit of a relationship so yeah it would have been a, a great moment for him and I imagine a weight off his shoulders, although it probably wasn't long before Brazil was then demanding world championships and more frequent wins. Well, in fact, it certainly wasn't. So you never really get rid of that pressure when it's out and saying you're supposed to live up to because that's basically impossible. The win put Barrichello only 10 points behind Schumacher in the championship. Rubens said he'd be lying if he said he wasn't thinking of the title, but he was uh, trying to avoid headlines saying he was going to fight for the championship. And he said his job was just to make sure that Ferrari finally won its first driver's championship for 21 years, regardless of which driver it was. But just in case there was any doubt, Ferrari president Luca de Montezemolo made the team's position clear. He said, as long as I am president of Ferrari, my two drivers will never compete against each other, but will always work for the exclusive interest of the Scuderia. We will do our utmost to help Michael Schumacher win the world title. McLaren couldn't resist getting involved in that debate, perhaps inevitably. Ron Dennis said he didn't agree with Ferrari's policy. And uh, Mercedes Norbert Haug said, nobody wants to be part of a team with a car that is told it is racing just to finish second. Ben, this was a, a lot part of a long drought for Ferrari. They're still a few months away from ending it at this stage. What did you make of, of the one driver stance? I think it made a lot of sense. As frustrating as it would have been for Barrichello after claiming your first victory, you know, massive moment in your career. The points situation is, as you mentioned, quite tight across the top four because of really the bad luck and unreliability that Schumacher's had in the earlier races, plus the start line crash that we can debate whether he was at fault for or not. But overwhelmingly, he was the fastest driver. It's the way Ferrari had operated previously, 97 to 99 when he'd come pretty close. Um, obviously not 99 because he broke his leg, but he would have come close and been in title contention had he continued driving. So Rubens must surely have known 
what he was getting himself into when he signed for Ferrari. Your job there is to be as close as you can without upsetting the apple cart, pick up as many points as possible, win the odd race when the lead driver's not in contention, doing the perfect job really. But talk of being a title contender, that's just kind of overblown media hype, I think. It was it was quite clear what Ferrari was setting out to do and it was quite sensible of them given how phenomenal Schumacher was also at pushing the boundaries and setting new trends within the championship, as we discussed earlier with his driving tactics, very Senna-esque. You're, you're not going to make Schumacher subservient to Barrichello at any point, really. Barrichello wasn't the only driver to come from the back of the field to take their best result in this uh, Grand Prix, as F1 rookie Jensen Button did the same on his way to fourth for Williams. Button qualified 16th, but he ended up at the very back when he stalled at the start of the formation lap. In his book, he said he was sitting there like a lemon while the team fired the car back up. Button thanked Lady Luck for the track invader that bunched the field up behind the safety car, and he then took advantage of being one of the first drivers to come in for wets to move up the order when everyone else pitted. Button called this the most scary and most enjoyable race of his career up to that point. And he said that that weekend was the most he'd enjoyed driving the car because he finally felt on top of it on track. Ed, was this a bit of a breakout performance for Button? Sort of. It depends on your definition of breakout, really. Yeah, it was his best result of the season. Very well judged. One of the first instances of him making a very, very good tyre call in, in wet conditions, which he became pretty well known for, whether it was judging when to go onto wets, when to go onto slicks. And even when he won the Hungarian Grand Prix, it's because he refused to come in when the team instructed him to in, in, in wet conditions. So there's a little bit of that there. But when I think of Button in 2000, it's not actually Germany that springs to mind, good drivers as it was in, in tricky conditions. You think of you know, missing out on points in the first race, great run of the British Grand Prix early on, which was like the fourth race of the season that year. He got, he got into the points, which really made a, an impression. His qualifying performances at Suzuka and and Spa. So I'd say Hockenheim's part of the tapestry of a very, very good first season, but it's not necessarily the one that you go, oh, that's that's the thing that really marked him out. Really, really good performance, especially after his delay at the start, but not necessarily the one that everyone remembers, which is a slightly different thing to whether that was his best performance of the year, because clearly he was delighted. But the thing that everyone talks about is his qualifying performance as Azuka, specifically his pace through the S's, that snake section at the start of the lap, where he was just astoundingly good and people were absolutely in awe of how good he was. That's when people realised how good Button could be, certainly those in the paddock. Yeah, I think this was a complete stealth race from Button, because up until... The rainfalls, you don't notice him. He's having an awful Grand Prix. He's anonymous. Then suddenly he's flying through the field. People are falling off in front of him. And right near the end, he's catching David Coulthard. And I think probably with another lap, he's going to finish on the podium. And you think, wow, that's that's amazing. <laughs> so I think a hint of what Ed touched on, you know, Button became known for these, these silky smooth drives feeling the track in difficult conditions like few others could and this was perhaps the first proper hint of that um, but it didn't really stand out as one of Button's most amazing races as a whole because he was basically nowhere and then suddenly he was immense in the final lap so you could probably say it was the best last few laps of his first season in F1 certainly. Similarities that you could have been describing the 2011 Canadian Grand Prix, couldn't you? Where he, he made a right mess of the first 75% of the race, then come from the back to win. But as you mentioned there, Ben, his progress was helped by 
some people falling off, uh, including a disastrous end to the race for BAR. Just as the rain started to come down, Ricardo Zonta tried to pass Jacques Villeneuve for what was seventh at the time, but could have been at least fifth later on as they were running just ahead of eventual fifth place finisher Mika Salo. But the pair tangled at the first corner, sending Villeneuve in to a memorable series of spins. And to make matters worse, Zonta had worked his way up to fourth a couple of laps later. Then he slid into the barriers in the stadium section. Given that he was just behind Coulthard, who was about to pit, and Frentzen, who was about to retire, that was a potential second place lost. Zonta said he was very sorry for the incident with Villeneuve, saying Villeneuve had made a mistake at the final corner, which gave Zonta a run on him. Ricardo said, Jacques gave me space, but not quite enough. I touched the curb, and as a result, the car slid out a little, and I clipped his rear wheel. Villeneuve was in no mood for accepting the apology. He he let rip at Zonta, saying, I have no respect for him at all. Since the start of the year, he has gone off in every other race because he drives over his limit. Today, I paid for it, and it cost the team three important points. And as we've said there, perhaps it cost them more than that. But Ben, was that an overreaction from Villeneuve or should Zonta have been more careful racing his teammate in those conditions? Uh, I think the answer to that question is both. <laughs> it is an overreaction from Villeneuve. And I think, you know, during this BAR phase, he was quite good at sounding off about all sorts of things and being quite gobby. Um, clearly, Zonta's just another guy he thinks is a bit rubbish and shouldn't really be around um, that's probably a bit harsh. I think at the same time, that first corner at Hockenheim, not a great passing spot, quite tricky to get a move done, probably ill-advised of Zonta to see and interpret Villeneuve leaving him some space as an invitation to throw it down the inside and try and pass him, especially as Villeneuve is pretty much the team leader. So wouldn't have really been a great look. And it's never a good look when you hit your teammate. You always have to race with a bit more circumspection when you're racing the guy on the other side of the garage. Um, and also, you know, this is one of those brilliant, crazy races that create fantastic opportunities for the smaller teams to get big results. So there was a lot riding on that race and Zonta triggers a chain of events that basically ruins a massive opportunity for BAR. Although it should be said, you know, Arrows had a great opportunity to score in this race and they were completely undone by somebody invading the track. So it goes both ways. And it should be noted that, yeah, a season is a full season of races. That adds up to the points tally. But BAR only just lost out on fourth place in the championship to Benetton. So had they actually picked up, I think, even a point from this race, that wouldn't have happened. They'd have finished fourth. So, yeah, you don't know that at the time. It's not just one thing that causes it, but that tells you the stakes, particularly in these days when it was only points down to six. Very, very small numbers of points were very significant. So it's probably best not to have contact with your teammate in those sorts of circumstances. If you're going to do that, do it while you're battling for 18th. Or if you're going to do it, uh, stay on the track and finish on the podium when that opportunity presents itself a few laps later. I can't work out if that, that probably would have made Villeneuve even more angry if Zonta had had him off and then finished second or third and been up on the podium. BAR's first podium, that would have been. How did you feel about it, Glenn? Because you must have been pretty angry yourself watching Villeneuve get turfed out by his teammate. De de devastated. I hadn't quite made the connection of where they might have finished until I've, I've reviewed it 22 
years later. I suspect, obviously, the question I asked <laughs> Are you, you more the, angry now then? <laughs> yeah, absolutely devastated. I, uh, I asked you the question, did Villeneuve overreact? I wonder if he overreacted on the throttle when he got spun and that's why the car just kept <laughs> turning round. And then the ultimate shame of it was that by the time it stopped spinning, he was facing the wrong way. So you try and keep the car turning and turning and you don't even get, you don't even get the reward of being able to just drive on. The thing I love about that is those spins you mentioned, they seem to encapsulate the fury, don't they? You can see him getting angrier every, with every yeah, turn yeah. of the car. It, yeah. it feels like a massive overreaction from the car, which just adds to the uh, to the comedy value of it. Maybe that's it. Maybe Villeneuve's chassis was also aware that it's outrageous that Zonta would try to overtake him and even more so make contact. Um, let's, let's leave it there. For Hockenheim 2000 and for the regular episodes in Series 6, thanks to ed and to ben for helping us over this finish line of sorts but as always bring back v10s isn't quite done there and uh, i think we'll have both of you back before the curtain properly falls on this series we've still got two more episodes to come then first up we'll be taking your questions as we always do at the end of the series and then we're going to finish with something a little bit different which uh, we won't tell you about right now but we hope you'll all enjoy Athletic.